Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for this time tonight to meditate upon the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross for his people. These are familiar texts and themes of Scripture, the central theme of Scripture. Would you make them new? Our Father, we pray that if there's any fog in our mind for understanding these things, that it would be removed. If there's any doubt of the application of Christ's work to our hearts, may you remove the doubt and give assurance of the gospel. We would ask humbly these things, Father, that you would apply your word to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Would you open God's word with me to where we were reading earlier, Isaiah 53, and we'll read verses 4 through 6. It's page 614 in the church Bible. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It would be very difficult to describe the clarity of Isaiah 53 as it presents the death of the Lord Jesus Christ some 700 years before the birth of Christ. Augustine said Isaiah doesn't write a prophecy, he writes a gospel, and that could be said of the whole book, especially chapter 53. Martin Luther was, said that every Christian should memorize this whole chapter because it is central to the gospel. There's a challenge for all of us. Delich said that all the references in the New Testament to Christ as the Lamb of God come back to this chapter. It's a significant chapter. And of the whole chapter, verses 5 and 6, seem to be the clearest prophecy on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us upon the cross. We know these verses are about the Lord Jesus Christ because in Acts 8, when Philip found the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah, and this chapter, and the eunuch said, Whom, who's Isaiah writing about? Philip got up in the chariot and opened his mouth and from that scripture preached to him Jesus. From these verses tonight, God gives us two things. He gives us, first of all, bad news. He gives us the diagnosis of our souls. We're straying sheep. And then he gives us good news, the remedy. There's a suffering shepherd to restore us. God's diagnosis of our souls as straying sheep, verse 6, it's bad news. And there's two parts to it. There's a guilt for us all, and there's the guilt for each one. The guilt of all, it's the whole flock that is guilty. Everyone, you see it in verse 6, we all, metaphor is a flock. Picture is all of humanity. And that's been our state since Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. And Adam, particularly as the head, willfully chose to rebel against God. And he brought the whole human race into sin and into the consequences of sin so that we're all born under Adam's guilt 
the lack of original righteousness, the corruption in our whole nature. We're all born into a state of sin and misery and danger and alienation from God. As Romans 3 says, as it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord Jeremiah 2. Who's guilty? Everyone. What are we guilty of? Going astray, verse 6. And the word can be translated wander. we've, We've preferred someone else and everything else except God, and we've turned away from him. We've left his presence. We've left his care. We've all turned aside, Psalm 14.3. No one in our sinful heart believes that God's law is good or right or safe or our delight. All of us at our center as sinners are ungrateful to God. We're self-righteous. We think our way is better. So often in scripture, the imagery of a wandering sheep is used for alienation from God, but it's also a picture of the harm that comes to us from wandering from God because when sheep wander, they get into danger. Ezekiel 34, 6, my flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or to seek for them. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. As Christ said it in Matthew 9, when Christ saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the irony. When a sheep wanders, it's not freedom. It's danger. It's misery because the sheep can't defend itself. They can't provide for themselves. They can't even find their own way home. A dog can find its way home. A sheep can't even find its way home. To wander is to expose yourself to danger. The only place of safety is with the shepherd. And it's a fool that would want to think otherwise. In high school, I had to care for some sheep that belonged to my boss. And I can tell you, they like to wander. They would always find the hole in the fence. And they'd get out on the highway, and I'd get the call, come and get the sheep off the highway. They couldn't find the hole to get back in. (laughs) And that's the nature of our heart. We're all the prodigal son. We would all leave home. We all think our own way is better. And that's the caution when we see someone else in sin and we look at them and we say their sin is irrational, their sin is destroying them. Don't they see how blind they are to their own sin? We need to be careful because we need to remember that we would be the same, except that God has had mercy on us. The nature of our heart is to wander. That's the guilt of the whole flock. And Isaiah goes further. It's not only the guilt of all, but then more specific. It's the guilt of each one. Each sheep is guilty. Verse 6. Every one, the English Standard Version translated. That's a good translation. Because it's, it's a new thought. It's already talked about the whole flock is rebelling. Now the thought is, and each one of us has his own particular way of rebelling. 
Each one of us has his own particular way of going against God's word, against God's law. We have turned, we have individual, personal guilt. No one does good, Psalm 14.3. No one will stand before God in our own goodness for, for merit. We all go our own way. And perhaps there's even the idea there that we're alienated from others. Our sin causes that alienation because we're quick to see how other people offend us. We're not so quick to see how we offend others. We're very quick to live for my pleasures, my interests, my ways, my feelings, and not see how it isolates ourselves from others. We're each guilty. The flock is guilty, and we're each guilty. Jonathan Edwards' observation was that selfishness is the essence. It's the primary mark of the sinful heart. If someone is not converted, they remain primarily self-centered. It's only with a new birth. It's only when God, the Holy Spirit, gives us that new birth to trust in Christ that we begin to desire God and to love others before ourselves. It's not natural. And it's going to be something we're going to have to work on all our life. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's wonderful good news. There's a full pardon for all of our sins, and we stand under the righteousness of Christ and And there's good news that we're delivered from sin's bondage. We are now free by the Holy Spirit to obey a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us that the presence and the struggle with sin is is not gone. And that's going to be with us the rest of our lives. And the mark of the growing Christian is to be aware of this and saying, Lord, show me how I am still self-centered. Show me how I'm still selfish and I don't even see it, that I might run to Christ because I know by definition I love to wander. I'd rather have it my way. Can you affirm this diagnosis of your heart? God's diagnosis of all of us and of our own hearts is that we're strange sheep. And it's only when we hear and believe that tragic diagnosis that we're ready to hear the good news. God's remedy for our souls is the suffering shepherd. That's the good news. And there's two aspects to this good news, and you need both to be good news. One is that Christ's remedy is that he's made a complete satisfaction for sin. He's made full payment. And the other aspect is he's done that in your place. He's done this as a perfect substitute in our place. Both aspects. The first is Christ's remedy is a complete satisfaction for our sin. This is what Isaiah is speaking of. He has come to pay, to make atonement for all of our sin. Verse 6, iniquity, he was crushed for our, and the eye can be translated perversions, faults, wrongs. So it's not only rebellions, it's all the twists of all of our sins of our soul. And he's been made, verse 10, a guilt offering for our sin. Certainly there the sacrificial system is front and center, and that's been the whole System under the Mosaic, the Old Testament, the sacrifices of sins, that was God's appointed way because it was pointing ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ. But when you brought a lamb, a perfect lamb, in your place, it was being brought as a substitute, and you would bring the lamb, you would place your hands upon the head of that lamb, and you would confess your sins, a beautiful picture of the sins being transferred now to this little lamb in your place, and then you would have to kill the lamb. The priests would collect the blood, and the blood would be seen for atonement. 
The holiness of God had to be satisfied by the shedding of blood, not by the shedding of bulls and sheep. That will never forgive sins. It's pointing to the Christ coming to shed his blood, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. And Christ is here being referred to as this sacrifice, this guilt offering. But I think we can be more specific than just general, that he came as a sacrifice, fulfilling the sacrificial system. Verse 10 can also be translated that he came as a guilt offering. I I like that translation. That's the way the New American translates this verse. He came as a guilt offering because the word here in Isaiah 53 is the same word that's used in Leviticus 5. And there it's translated the trespass offering or the guilt offering. It was a particular sacrifice in the sacrificial system. It was a particular sacrifice that you would bring. And it would, it would be the sacrifice that you would bring to cover all the sins you weren't even aware of. All the ways that you have fallen short of the law of God. And you weren't even aware of it. So the sacrifice is a picture of restitution. It's a, sacrifice, it's a picture of compensation to make full payment for all that God has demanded. There would be other sacrifices for sins you're aware of, and you confess those. But it's the guilt offering that covers them all, even the ones you're not aware of. And what a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has come and he has shed his blood for us. And we confess our sins that we're aware of. But go up a verse, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins, even the ones we're not aware of. Jesus Christ is fulfillment of Isaiah 53, and he comes to make guilt offering, a sacrifice for all sins. His remedy then, his sacrifice, will satisfy all of God's holiness. Look at verse 6, who is giving the Lord Jesus It's the Lord, all caps. That's the theme, isn't it, of Isaiah? Back in chapter 6 and verse 3, the prophet saw the Lord, all caps. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said, woe is me, I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's the one that is delivering up the good shepherd. The father and the son is willingly laying down his life. The father is delivering his son. He who hates all sin, who cannot accept the guilty, Exodus 23, is the one who is delivering up his son as the lamb of God. So that Christ would pay for all sin and satisfy the holiness of God. This is the first part of the remedy, and it's wonderful good news. Christ has come, and he has paid in his death. All sin of all of his people was placed upon him, and he paid for them in full. What's the second part of the good news? You see, that's wonderful good news as it is, but it's not the whole story. The rest of the good news is that Christ has done this as a substitute in your place. The Oxford Dictionary on substitute says it's to put one person or thing in place of another. John Stott said the essence of sin is we human beings 
substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God's substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. The British scholar J.S. Whale said, here in Isaiah 53, you will find 12 distinct, explicit statements that the good shepherd comes as a substitute to die for his sheep. 12 of them. Let let your eye look through the chapter. Look at verse 4. He has borne our griefs, our sorrows he carried or to bear away, to take away. He lifts up a burden that was on us and he takes it away. He takes it upon himself. Verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Not that he just suffered for sin. He certainly didn't suffer for his own sin. See, he was without sin. And it isn't that he just suffered for sin generally. No, specifically, he died for our sins, the sins of his people. All of them were placed upon Christ. That's why he died. It's by his wounds, at the cost of his laceration, his open wounds, we are healed. The chastisement that brought us peace fell on him. It's by his scourgings we are healed. Verse 6, the iniquity of us was laid on him. Verse 8, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. It's a very violent word. To beat someone to death. All these descriptions could... Don't they describe the crucifixion? Pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged. He renders himself as a guilt offering, verse 10. He will bear their iniquities, verse 11, to carry that burden. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many, and they're up and gone because he's taken them away, our sin, as a substitute for us. He instead of we, his instead of our, him instead of us, he suffered, one substituted in the place of many. For our eternal salvation. You need both parts to be good news. Is it a substitute? Is it substitution for Bill Gates, the billionaire, to set up a scholarship fund? And he puts millions of dollars in this scholarship fund for any who would like to apply and who are qualified. Is that a substitution? No. It's generous, but he's not substituting for anybody. He's not taking anybody's place. And if no one applied for the scholarships or no one was qualified for the scholarships, the money would stay in the bank. That's not a substitution. That's a donation. Christ's death was not a donation. It was a substitution. He came to die with his people's name on his mind and heart when he went to the cross. He was dying in your place, believer. Robert Coleman, in his book, Written in Blood, tells the beautiful story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion to save her life. The doctor explained to the little boy that she had the same disease that he had had but recovered from two years prior. Her only chance now was for a blood transfusion from somebody who had already had the disease and conquered the disease so the antibodies would be in the blood. And since they were the same blood type, he, the doctor was asking Johnny if he would donate his blood to save his sister's life. 
The doctor said, would you give your blood to Mary? Johnny hesitated. His lower lip trembled. And then in his tears, he smiled and he said, sure, from my sister. So it wasn't long the two were wheeled into the hospital. Mary was very pale, very thin, very sickly. Johnny was healthy and robust. Neither of them spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny smiled. Nurse came in and inserted the needle, put the needle into Johnny's arm, and his face went white. He was watching the blood, his blood flow through the tube. And when the procedure was almost over, his voice broke the silence, shaking. Very quietly, he said, Doctor, when do I die? And it was only then that the doctor realized why Johnny was hesitating and why his lips were quivering and trembling when he had asked Johnny if he would donate his blood because Johnny thought that if he donated his blood to his sister, it meant giving up his life for her. And he had chosen to die to save his sister. In that brief moment, he chose and loved to be her substitute. That's what Jesus did. He came and he suffered in hell for in your place. He died so that you would live. He died on the cross not just to put a trillion dollars worth of forgiveness in a bank somewhere. But he died as your substitute. He paid for your sin, believer, all of it, for all time, by name. And that's why the apostle would write Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what the cross is. The God-man, second person of the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, went to the cross to bear our sins. That's why the theologians refer to the cross as the penal substitution. Penal is a term from the court. You think of penalty. A penal substitution is a judicial term. It's focusing on taking the justice that was due, taking the sentence, taking the wrath that was due for our sins. Christ's work is a penal substitution. Jesus Christ died for you, believer, for your redemption for your salvation, for your reconciliation to God. Not just the possibility of it. It wasn't just a donation. It was a substitution. James Boyce writes, Jesus did not come merely to make salvation possible, but actually to save his people. He did not come to make redemption possible. He died to redeem his people. He did not come just to make propitiation possible. Possible. He turned aside God's wrath for each of his elect people forever. He did not come to make reconciliation between God and man possible. He actually reconciled to God those the Father had given him. He did not come merely to make atonement for sins possible, but actually to atone for sinners. 
Christ's work on the cross was not a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, but a real and definite salvation for God's own chosen people, a redemption that does not redeem, a propitiation that does not propitiate, a reconciliation that does not reconcile, and an atonement that does not atone cannot help anybody, but a redemption that redeems, a propitiation that propitiates, a reconciliation that reconciles, and an atonement that atones reveal a most amazing grace on God's part and draw us to rest in him and his completed work rather than our own. You see it in verse 5. It's in the work of Christ we are healed, not might be healed. It's not a contingency. He took my place willingly. He took your place, believer, willingly to secure our salvation. The shepherd died for his sheep by name. Paying for every sin that we would ever commit, making it certain that in God's appointed time, the Holy Spirit would apply the gospel to our hearts and that we would repent and believe in Christ. Do you see why we need both aspects for it to be good news? Christ's remedy, yes, is a complete satisfaction for sin. But if it was just a donation and nobody in mind, that's not very good news. No, no, it was the shepherd laying down his life for his sheep by name. So that's one part of it. Christ's remedy is a complete satisfaction for sin. And the second part is, it was a perfect substitute in your place. Well, what if it wasn't a full payment? Oh, but it was a full payment. It was complete satisfaction on the cross. He cried, it's finished. You have both aspects in the gospel, and it's such good news. I love reading of redemptive analogies in missions. Um, As missionaries have gone into different cultures, they have found where God in his providence has kept certain cultural traditions or cultural aspects, understanding, and they're beautiful metaphors in how to present the gospel into an otherwise closed culture. And one of those is in Morocco and Islam. There's a cultural tradition that the first son is always to be named Muhammad. The first daughter is always to be named Fatima. In the first week of the child's life, there's a celebration called Sabua, and that's when the child is given its name. Before this ceremony, the child is not part of the family. There needs to be a ceremony to bring the child into the family. The father has to purchase a lamb, He has to slaughter it on behalf of the helpless child in order that the child may become part of the family. There must be a lamb provided by the father, substituted for the child. The child can't provide the lamb. It's the love of the father that provides the lamb for the child so that the child can become part of the family. And there's a way in for the gospel to come into that culture. You see it? The only way you can be made part of God's family is that the Father has to provide a lamb slain in your place, and he has the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you put your faith and trust in him, there's full pardon, full reconciliation. He's paid for all of your sins in full to all those who trust in him. We don't come before God presenting our own works and our own merit. We cling only to Jesus Christ, and the shepherd has died for his sheep. It's a free gift. It's The free gift of God is eternal life. 
Romans 6.23, and that's what's preached to you tonight. Do you believe it? To all of you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, believe the scriptures that he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our hearts. Give us each one the faith to believe that this is true for themselves. Not only that Jesus Christ came and died for sinners, but that he came and died for me. He is the Lamb that you have provided that by faith in him, we become part of your family. We ask that you would seal these promises of the forgiveness of sins to us now in the supper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.